Welcome to the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu, and I will be serving as your Femme Tour, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into graduate school. For the past 10 years, I've been helping undergraduate students get into top graduate programs in their field, and I'm really excited to share this information with you too. Hello everyone, happy Friday. I am here, um, excited to bring you a brand new episode with a special guest. But before I introduce her or get started, I wanted to give you a quick announcement. Um, first off is you might notice that I have moved the publication time of the episodes. Instead of publishing the episodes on Sunday mornings, I am going to be publishing them likely Thursday at midnight or Friday around midnight, 1 a.m. That way, Friday morning, as soon as you get up, if you're getting ready in the morning, you can listen to the episode. If you're commuting somewhere, you can listen to the episode. If you have a study break or a lunch break, again, you can listen to me then. I did put out a poll on Instagram to ask my listeners if you have any preference on what day and time to publish it. And Friday seemed to be a popular day. So that's uh, the reason why I've changed the episode publication dates. The other thing I want to do is remind you that I am still taking listener reviews. So if you go to your um, iTunes podcast app. Um, you can go ahead and leave a three, four, five star review and a comment. I will be selecting and reading comments each episode. And whoever um, leaves a comment, as soon as I read your comment aloud, feel free to email me and you'll get a special prize. Last time I mentioned that the person that, um, that left the comment could receive a free CV template. Well, this time I have more goodies to offer because I'm feeling really grateful um, and generous. And so you get to choose one of the following things if I read your if I read your comment, your listener review on my podcast. You can choose between a CV template. This is a template with all the different sections that you need to write a good CV. It's already formatted for you. You can have a copy of a grad school list template. This is an Excel sheet with all the columns that you need to fill out so that you can have a strong graduate school list. You can choose also between a statement of purpose pre-writing handout. This is a handout that I created with specific questions for you to answer. And if you answer all of those questions, you'll have everything that you need to write a strong, um, a strong statement of purpose for grad school. And then the last option is a self-care and stress management PowerPoint. So it's a PowerPoint that I put together to come up with ideas for you to learn more about what is self-care, what is stress, how to implement it, how to manage your stress um, on a regular basis. So again, you've got those four options, CV template, grad school list template, statement of purpose, pre-writing handout, or a self-care and stress management PowerPoint. All right, so today I am going to be reading another listener review, and this one is by KUA12, KUA12, and they said, 
this podcast has helped me let's see gain better insight into what I need to prepare my graduate applications. Great. I'm so glad to hear that because sometimes I wonder if I'm being helpful and it's always nice to know that people kind of appreciate and are learning from from what I'm saying. So thank you so much KUA12 KUA12. If you're listening right now, shoot me an email Choose one of the four options, and I will send you that resource. All right, so without further further ado, let's go on to the segment for today, which is my special guest speaker. I have a special treat for you. I have my first guest on the show. Um, I guess I can call her, I get my guest co-host. She's my a friend. She's an amazing, fierce mama scholar. I'm actually going to just go ahead and introduce her to you uh, and then let her share a little bit more about her journey as a, um, as a low-income first-gen student of color, now graduate student, single mom, where she's at, and any advice she wants to share with you all. So here's her bio. Cecilia Caballero is an Afro-Chicana single mother scholar poet. She's the mother of a 10-year-old boy, Alonso, who was born during her time as an undergraduate student. She is a PhD candidate in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She also holds BAs in English and Chicanx Studies from UC Berkeley and an AA in Liberal Arts from Los Medanos Community College. Her dissertation focuses on narratives of Chicana mothering, feminism, gender, sexuality, and spiritual activism in Chicana literature and cultural production. And her next creative project focuses on the intersections between Black and Chicana feminist speculative theory in the works of Octavia Butler and Gloria Ansaldúa. Cecilia is the co-founder of the Chicana Motherwork Collective and is a co-editor of the Chicana Motherwork Anthology, Porque Sin Madres No Hay Revolución, she is also an essayist, poet, and creative writer, and is the founder of the Bookworm Por Vida podcast, which I gave a shout out in uh, just two episodes ago. And um, she she has a project, in, this is a project in which she celebrates BIPOC literature for liberation. So welcome to the show, Ceci. Thanks. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. It's <laughs> definitely been we've known each other for a long time <laughs> <laughs> yes yes <laughs> we have <laughs> I don't even want to get started on how long because <laughs> because we have that our inside joke of I don't I have a bad memory yeah she doesn't remember <laughs> when we first became friends but that's okay I guess <laughs> Sorry, please love you. Please love me back. <laughs> but so, Ceci, um, if you can, uh, just tell us a little bit more about your backstory, who you are, where you're from, you know, and your your trajectory up to this point. Yeah. So, there. Where do I start? Well, I think first I can just share what my positionality is, which is first gen, low income, daughter of immigrants. And I think it's just common for a lot of us who uh, are children of immigrants or who parent, whose parents um, 
are poor and my parents, they only have sixth grade educations. So my parents, when they came here um, to California from uh, Michoacan, um, they did encourage me um, to go to school. And I remember my dad talking, he would always encourage me and say, you know, don't work with your hands like I do because he was a farm worker and construction laborer. And I love school. So as soon as, as soon as I learned to read, um, I was just devouring books and I still do. <laughs> so, um, I loved school and by the time I got to high school, I started having the uh, awareness that um, maybe maybe this isn't for me. And I think part of that was just that internalized um, racism, just classism, um, because my family was really poor. And in high school, I started working and I gave most of my income to my parents. So I felt like, oh, I have to stay or I can't move away. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even in my consciousness that I even, it, it was even an option to move away or even move far away. I just, I was just even limited. I limited myself, but I didn't realize that at the time. So in high school, uh, I didn't apply to any four-year colleges. Actually, at the time, my high school didn't even have college counselors. They had the vice principal take that job and I was really confused I didn't know what like the A through G requirements were and I was really bad at math and I was scared of standardized testing and I didn't take the SATs and I just remember thinking to myself in high school like well I'm not going to college like it's just it's not for me it's for people who have more money or white people um but that's just because I had such a lack of resources and what I did instead was I went to community college and I did that for three years. And during that time, I worked full time and went to school full time, three or four classes a semester. And I loved it, um, but I was still living at home. And I remember very specifically, even though I was doing well in my classes, um, I still kind of had those limiting internalized limiting limited beliefs where I was just thinking, I remember thinking to myself like, Oh, well, these good schools, they're for other people. They're not for me. And it just happened. It just so happened that I happened to meet with um, a transfer counselor just by accident. Cause I just kind of wandered into the office <laughs> one day and the counselor I met with, just happened to be Gigana and that surprised me because I was just not used to seeing someone who resembled me in any of my public school teachers, K through 12 or, or even at the community college level. So I was surprised when I saw this Gigana, this woman um, who kind of looked like me telling me um, that I could go to uh, different kinds of, or apply to different kinds of four-year institutions because I thought that I was just going to apply to the CSUs and uh, the California State University system in California. And there's nothing wrong with those schools, but it, the issue was that um, I didn't, I didn't even envision myself at a place like Berkeley or Stanford or an Ivy league. And um, not that those are, you know, quote unquote, the best schools either, but I just was not exposed to this information. 
Um, and again, I wanted to um, stay close to home because I just thought that, oh, well, I need to help support my family. And at that time, I couldn't make the decision to move away or um, I felt like I couldn't because I was um, kind of, uh, well, now I would call it <laughs> thanks to therapy enmeshment with my family, which can be um, unhealthy. But at the time, I just felt like I had no other option. Like I had to stay, I had to stay close. So the, the college counselor, she said, well, she looked at my grades and she said, well, you can apply to not just the CSUs, but places, but the UC system, the University of California system. And she said, maybe you could even go to Berkeley like I did. And that just totally blew my mind because she, I had never met a Chicana who graduated from a place like Berkeley. And she helped me um, enroll in like a transfer program. And I did that. So then I was admitted to uh, Berkeley, which was absolutely just so far beyond my imagination. It's the number one ranked public institution in the country. Mm -hmm. And I came into Berkeley and I, at first I came in as an English major and because I love literature um, and even at, community college I remember that at the time there wasn't even an English major like I don't know why <laughs> the next closest thing was liberal arts so that's why my AA is in liberal arts because that was the closest kind of humanities degree that I could find um, so when I came into Berkeley English as an English major junior transfer I didn't realize that Eng an English degree meant reading the white the white English canon and it was just not relevant to me. A lot of it was boring. A lot of it was racist. Uh, <laughs> I felt <laughs> excluded in many ways, um, not just from the, the, what was taught on the syllabus, but also um, even from professors, some professors. And it was through... Uh, I didn't have any clue what was going on my first semester there, but um, I was, oh, so I was still commuting because my parents lived in Northern California and I would just go to class. I kind of arranged my classes. Um, I would just be there during the day. So I'd arrive in the morning on BART, the public transportation, and then I would just, so I do feel looking back on it, um, I do feel that I kind of missed out on that college experience because I never got to live in a dorm or kind of have more of that sense of independence. Um, but, um, and my first semester, I felt like I didn't belong at all, which also was my experience when I came into the PhD later. Um, but then slowly over time, I got to know people in my classes and I really connected with uh, who, who were able to share more resources with me. And I connected with one professor who um, also was interested in Chicano literature, or he is a professor of Chicano literature, and he recognized um, my passion for it. And he was the one to encourage me to apply for the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship. Uh, so that year that... And even that, I felt intimidated to apply, you know, again, that imposter syndrome of just like, oh, I'm not even good enough. It was kind of like the common theme that I struggled with. Um, and actually, I still struggle with now even in different ways. But even back then, it's just even though my professor was encouraging me to apply to this program, 
I thought to myself, well, I'm not good enough. It's for other people. You know, other people will get it. I won't get it. And I, I, that's also where I learned what a PhD even was and that it was even possible to have a career uh, as a professor and study books for a living, right? Like all of this was just mind blowing to me. And I did apply and I did get it and the fellowship. And that's where I met Yvette for the first time, even though she doesn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I only remember like grad school times. Yeah. Locked out undergrad because it's so dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's where. Eva and I first met, it, it was the first regional, um, uh, not the first, I don't think it was the first, but it was the regional undergraduate conference for Mellon May's undergraduate students. And she was, mm-hmm. Yvette was a, a Mellon at UCLA and, uh, as an undergraduate, and I was at UC Berkeley as an undergraduate. And the conference was at Stanford, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah that I yeah. do remember. <laughs> oh, you just don't remember me? <laughs> I see how yeah, it is. I only know because that's how my CV. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what happened. Yeah. what I did back then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say you were being a nerd. We'll I know. Keep, we'll keep it at that. <laughs> but but um, by that time, uh, it was really through Mellon where the, and McNair is also a similar program where you get um, funding to do research, you get to go to um, conferences, you get to, that's also where I uh, was, it was my first time presenting at a conference and preparing a conference paper, networking, meeting other Mellons, um, especially the other first generation students of color. And I love the program I love Mellon for those reasons and I actually I I also remember the that first conference that I went to or actually that was the first ever conference I went to the Mellon Mays regional conference when I was an undergrad Uh, yeah yeah, and I also remember it because I was pregnant at the time Mm -hmm. and I no, that was in um it was Halloween I remember so that was like the end of October yeah, it was fall. It was a fall um, conference. It must have been October. Yeah. Yeah, because um, so then November, December, January, and my son was born in January. Um, wow. Yeah, and I remember that. I remember that I went shopping. So I, that was another part where I was just like, oh, I don't know what to wear to a conference. You know, like what? <laughs> I have to look professional, or you know, what does that mean? And I went to Target because <laughs> I'm like, where do, I'm like, where do I go? I don't know. I went to Target and well, I still like Target. <laughs> even, I even now. From Target <laughs> before doing this. <laughs> oh, I remember you told me you were excited that they were finally opening a Target there. <laughs> Right. Yes, because yeah. that's where I live, there was not a Target for three years of my life. Oh my god, how did I survive? <laughs> anyway, so going to Target. Yeah. So, and I remember I was trying to pick out a shirt that kind of was flowy, and because also being a mom, but a first-time mom, but also while I was an undergraduate, while also 
planning to do this PhD thing and while managing, because um, I was having difficulties with my parents because at first they were just um, upset at me or not as supportive when I first learned that I was pregnant. So I was navigating all these things. So I'm just like, well, I'm going to solve my problems by going to Target and <laughs> finding a flowy shirt that kind of hides it. Yeah, I remember thinking like, oh, I don't want to necessarily show off being pregnant because um, I still felt kind of uncomfortable being in these kinds of spaces um, while pregnant. And I, so I found this purple, I remember it was like this purple button up kind of flowy top. Um, and I was like, oh, this will work. And then that's also the conference where I met um, our friend Esther, who is now uh, a professor, but she was also part of Yvette's Melon Maze cohort from UCLA. Yep, we're part of and, the first cohort. <laughs> yeah. And that's also where I first met Esther. And I remember like late, like years later, I told her, I said, oh, yeah, I remember that, um, you know, when I went up there to give my presentation, I remember that um, I was thinking about how uh, that I felt relieved that I was hiding my pregnancy because I didn't want that to be like the focus point or, you know, I was still kind of um, worried about what people might say. But I mean, now I don't care. But <laughs> at the time, <laughs> it was just, I was still kind of figuring everything out. Um, and then Esther was just like, Oh, no, I could tell I noticed. And I was just like, <laughs> 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 I'm like, well, there was my plan that just obviously didn't work. <laughs> I guess it was obvious that I was pregnant. But I just I don't know, I had it in my mind that I just, I wasn't showing to that extent yet but apparently I was um but yeah so the story so my trajectory a large part of it does have to do with uh, having a child as an undergraduate and I remember the summer before um I was doing a summer research opportunity program so these are programs um, I don't know if you've talked about those programs on the show yet Yvette no, not, no, no, I, I haven't devoted an episode to it, but thank you. That's a good reminder. <laughs> yes. Programs that you can, um, there's the Leadership Alliance program, and then uh, a lot of institutions individually host what they call SROP, so the Summer Research Opportunity Program, and it's intended for underrepresented students to uh, gain research experience. So my... SROP experience. Uh, I just did a program at Berkeley, even though I was a student at Berkeley. Um, and But it worked out because I was still able to work with uh, my mentor, the mentor I already had. But I remember I found out that I was pregnant maybe a day or two <laughs> before that program started. So I had already planned um, I was like, well, I have these books. This is my topic. I'm going to do this. And this is preparation for me to apply to the PhD programs, which I was planning to do that following fall. Um, and then I found out I was um, pregnant, which was unplanned. And I did have a lot of um, complex feelings about it and just a lot of fear because even from my family, um, having people doubt me, it really, um, it was really hurtful that um there wasn't that sense of um, celebration or people being happy for me. It was more just 
like, oh, you did something you weren't supposed to do. And now this is going to, um, m- now you messed up your, your one chance to you know, succeed or, you know, whatever that means. So it was really hurtful, but I was able to get support from, um, I had a grad student mentor, uh, Marisol, who, when I first met her, uh, I was, I was not a mother yet, or I, but I remember when she shared her story with me when I first met her, or this is when I first transferred to Berkeley. Um, she shared with me that she, because she was an undergraduate student mother at um, an Ivy League, and she was, you know, she's kind of first gen. And now she was doing a PhD here at UC Berkeley. And uh, I remember I was thinking, wow, that's just an amazing story because you don't often um, hear or see these kinds of narratives like anywhere really. And so I was just so um, impressed with Marisol. And then when I found out I was pregnant, I think it was like a year or two later, um, she was one of the first people I told. And so she was actually one of the first people who did congratulate me and, Mm. and was happy for me. So it meant so much to me because, and then also just knowing, seeing her modeling how she did it, even though she also had a lot of challenges, but she was able to, um, access different resources, get different kinds of support and help. And she finished her bachelor's degree and then moved on to the PhD. So, uh, and then at, at Berkeley specifically, there's also something called the Student Parent Center. And I also went there and I had resources, uh, received resources such as, um, and I wish all schools d- would do this actually, uh, no matter where you go to school, um, that they gave you a block grant. So all you had to do was just show proof of um, that you were a parent. So they just asked for your child's birth, birth certificate. And from that, they gave you a block grant every semester. And I think it was two or $3,000 a semester, which was a lot wow. like that. Yeah, it, it really just helped. And, um, and I really do $500 here on like at UCSB five, grad students, $500 per per quarter. And that's only if they're an uh, academic student employee. If they're not employed, oh, wow. they don't get that, that child care reimbursement. And you have to show proof of child care, which is very frustrating to me because I'm like, $500 is not enough. It's, it's, I mean, it's something, but it's not enough. And on top of that, if you're not employed on campus, if you have a fellowship, they don't cover you. Yeah, so it's just there's, there's certain stipulations or restrictions that you have to meet in order to access um, some of these grants, just depending on where you are. So um, I think at Berkeley, there there have been some faculty working for, um, I would say, a couple of decades now, or the Student, student Parent Center started, I would, I think it's 20, it's been 20 years at least. So maybe because there, there is like a longer history, but it should ideally be like a uniform kind of thing throughout like the UCs, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why that's not the case. Yeah, but um, but even at USC, um, they the only uh, funds that they offer for graduate student parents, um, and I don't think I haven't even heard anything for undergraduate student parents. But for graduate student parents at USC, you also have to demonstrate um, 
you get reimbursed. So that means you pay for it first and then you show the receipts of, um, and then the restriction is that they only fund it from um, preschool age. So before the, the children enter kindergarten, and then you have to show proof that you pay that they go to a childcare center and then they give you a thousand dollars or something. But that leaves out the rest of us yeah. who have kids older than five and some people don't go to the centers because they're so expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't take, if you have a babysitter that doesn't count to, in order to qualify for this grant. So it's just pretty, it's pointless <laughs> for me. So I haven't gotten any uh, support as a student parent in that sense at USC, but, um, but so I was able to access some resources at the time at UC Berkeley and that really helped. And another thing that I did was um, the Institute for the Recruitment of Teachers, uh, which is a program. I think it's a national program. So it's just open to mm -hmm. any college student. And it was really helpful because what they do is that they have um, they have staff that's just dedicated. They pair you with one person. And they help you go and create your drafts of your personal statement, your um, statement of purpose. Um, they help you figure out which programs to apply to. Um, and then I think part of the requirements of IRT, I think they, it, they require you to submit to applications to 10 schools or something like mm -hmm. that, which is actually helpful because you just kind of, I've heard the phrase, like, you just want to cast a wide net, like, you never know what's going to happen, mm -hmm. who's going to admit you, or what kind of funding package offer you'll get. Um, and then that really helped. Um, but I, so I graduated, but then I took a year off, because I knew I wanted to spend time with my son, because I knew I just heard from so many graduate students and other people that once you get in, to a PhD program, then you're in, and it's kind of very difficult to have um, any sense of balance or whatever. If what what does that balance even mean in terms of like school and family? So I knew I wanted to take a year off because my son was still so young. But even and then in the meantime, I worked as I was a substitute teacher. I was a tutor, and I just kind of did random jobs around education in that area but I was still, it was flexible. So I still had time with my son. And then I applied that fall for PhD programs, even though I wasn't um, in school. Um, and then I remember thinking to myself like, oh, well, if I, I'll just see what happens. And if I don't get in, I'll just apply the following year. So let's just see how it goes. And I did get in, I got into three programs. Um, but then I, I picked USC. Um, yeah, and I, I picked USC for me. It came down, the decision came down um, mostly because of the financial uh, offer that I got from USC, which was the most out of the other two schools. And even though it was in LA and I was in uh, Northern California, um, I just, that I felt like I just couldn't turn down the offer. Um, I think it was also two years of fellowship, which meant no 
um, teaching. And I think they've increased it to three years fellowship now. So if anyone wants to apply to USC, (laughs) (laughs) definitely, uh, definitely apply because I think they have, um, it's even, I think they even, the stipends are even more now. I think USC's, um, they want to be um, more competitive. So um, that was really the biggest reason that I came to USC. (laughs) And I think that's such just a first gen kind of thing because I didn't want to go into debt. I didn't want to teach every single semester. Um, And luckily I was able to do that um, to get what I wanted with uh, USC, which just, which made things easier, especially being a single mom. And I moved away from home um, and I didn't know anyone in LA. And I also had just went through a breakup, like right the summer, right before I moved to LA is when I split with um, my son's dad. And then uh, looking back on it, I was just, I I don't know how I did it. (laughs) Yeah. I had such little support and, I would not advise students to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I made it work somehow. Wow. We're, um, we're getting close to the time. And I, I know that you've already kind of shared resources along the way, at least like the things that you were able to, to kind of navigate in undergrad. But I wanted to maybe just have you on for another minute or two if you have any advice to offer to our listeners, which they're mostly a combination of like undergraduate students who are uh, learning about or maybe preparing their graduate applications or folks who have taken some time off and are looking to kind of get back to um, thinking about grad school. So if you have any um, tips or advice life lessons, uh, additional things that you want to share with them? Yeah, I would say um, research your institutions or departments as much as you can, because what ended up happening with me is that I came into USC as an English PhD in the English PhD program. And then after a year, I switched over to the American Studies PhD and Part of that was there was just more faculty and faculty of color to work with in the American Studies Department. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's okay if you, even if you do do research and you get there and you feel like it's not the best fit for you, you can always change. You know, there's no um, shame about it or, um, I mean, sometimes you do have to navigate certain kinds of politics, but it's definitely doable and it's not, um, it's not something that, um, something that it will be held against you or anything it's actually pretty common and then um and then the way to do that usually is that probably the best information that you'll get will be from the current graduate students um and you know even if you just um just even having a conversation or you asking even if you ask them you know what is their research on or um how do they like the department or how do they like living in that city or wherever that program is. And even just the way that um, students respond, I think will just give you a lot of information because another thing to be careful about is um, some institutions can be toxic um, or if people are just unhappy, that does have an effect on um, physical health, mental health. So 
And then, but then the other thing about that is no department is perfect. Mm -hmm. And because of that, um, just trying to gather, um, build community as much as you can. So of course, working with Yvette. So Yvette and I work on, are in the Chicana Motherwork Collective. Um, But I remember also, I think when we first started grad school, me and Yvette, and I think it was Esther too, that I think we had like a group a book club meeting on the book presumed incompetent the intersections of race and class for women in academia yeah so even if it's just and we were in different places so we just did it over i think we just did it online the meeting the book club meeting so even if you don't have people near you physically you can do something like that um just the more people you have on your back the more people have your back the better and um yeah, I think that's pretty much um, all I can think of for now. Nice. All right. Well, then I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story and providing invaluable advice to my listeners. And um, with that, I'm going to let you go. And hopefully, you know, maybe we'll have you again in the near future if you have any other topics you'd like to, to cover. Yeah, thank you. Of course, I would love that. All right, Ceci. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. That was Cecilia Caballero. I hope that you enjoyed and learned a lot from her. Um, Now I am going to be transitioning to the next segment, which is... um, listener questions. So every once in a while, if I get listener questions via Instagram DM or over email, I'm going to be dedicating a little bit of time to answering those questions. And then of course, I'm going to end the podcast uh, episode with a shout out. So let's talk about this week's listener questions. I received a few questions from listener named Morgan. And she wants to know what to look for in a program, what questions to ask when considering certain life circumstances, such as living with chronic illness. Do I disclose my chronic illness during the interview process or not address it at all? I have health mostly managed, um, so I'm assuming health, health concerns, and mostly managed it, but will experience debilitating symptoms every once in a while. My rule of thumb has always been to be upfront with everyone about my physical needs. However, I know oversharing is very risky. The other question uh, she has is how to bring my partner into my grad school search plans, especially when it would mean relocating. And then finally, her third question is CV or resume. I've seen options to send either, but is one more beneficial over the other? Okay, let's talk about the first question because... I can actually relate to that a lot. I suffer from a number of different chronic illnesses and I, um, I suffered through them in graduate school without getting proper accommodations. And that's something that I wish I would have done. It would have, um, helped me manage my symptoms much more. And I think part of it was, it was hard for me to even come to terms with it because I developed my chronic health issues in grad school during my second year, near the end of my second year of grad school. And so for this, um, I mean, I'll tell you what, if I could go back, what I would do, if I knew coming into graduate school that I had a chronic illness, 
I wouldn't necessarily disclose it right away um, because, again, uh, you may not want anybody to uh, discriminate against you for it. But at the same time, once you've been admitted and once you've accepted a program, that's something that I recommend um, being open about, especially with your healthcare providers and getting the documentation that you need necessary to get accommodations. Why? Because even if you disclose this to everybody, not everyone is going to be flexible or accommodating with you unless they see an actual signed form from a health provider saying that these are the types of accommodations you need. And so that I, I don't believe in suffering in silence. I don't think that you should go to graduate school and not tell anybody and then power through and then make yourself sicker. That's what happened with me. So I definitely recommend maybe you don't have to share at the beginning, maybe not when you're applying. I mean, up to you. Uh, and that's something that you could, if you feel comfortable with, you could talk about that in your personal statement when you apply to graduate school. Um, because that's, you know, some that's something that committee members sometimes uh, take a look at. You know, they look at how is this student different from everybody? How is this student going to contribute to diversity? And if you are living with a chronic illness and are differently abled, that's something that they, that, you know, may not look bad on your part. But again, I know that's a very personal decision. I don't know that I would have felt, felt comfortable going into graduate school sharing that if I did have those um, issues back then. But I know definitely once you've been admitted, you should advocate for yourself. That's like the main thing that I can't stress enough is to learn to advocate for yourself because no one else will. And your health comes first before anything else. All right, question number two. How do I bring my partner into my grad school search and plans when it would mean relocating? That, again, is a very personal question. And I will, again, tell you kind of what, I, what, what was going on with me at the time. So I got married. We basically got hitched in Vegas. We eloped and didn't tell anybody until two years later by the time I started grad school. So I knew that I was going to be with this person long term, obviously. <laughs> we were married when I ap applied to grad school. And um, I had a very honest conversation. I have always prioritized my career above anything else. And that's kind of my own personality. And so I was very clear with him about, look, I'm applying to graduate programs. And I hope that you'll be supportive. And it might mean re relocating. There's a really good chance that I'm going to have to relocate. I mean, it's funny because I didn't want to stay in L.A. I was applying to a bunch of out-of-state schools. And the only Ph.D. program I actually got admitted to was UCLA, so I did stay there. So it worked out in a sense, but that wasn't my plan. My plan was to go to NYU or go to Northwestern or go to Brown and then come back to L.A. later after grad school. Thankfully, I have a partner and husband who has been very supportive of my career. Um, he actually moved with me to Santa Barbara for this job that I have now and has been able to then pursue his own studies after like following me. So he, we moved here and then he got his master's and now he got his job here. Well, somewhat, I mean, he commutes, but he still um, is able to make it work. So 
at when in relationships, it, a lot of it is give and take, and it should be reciprocal. In some cases, he's going to be supporting you, maybe moving with you, and in other cases, you're going to be doing that for him. And so, hopefully, this is your time, and this is a time that he can be supportive of you. Okay, the last one: CV or resume. Um, that's fairly straightforward. I would say that um, you should prioritize sending a CV if you're applying to graduate programs, especially if it's a PhD program. If they say resume or CV, they mean CV. You send a CV because it's a it's a PhD program. You're expected to do research. That's the um, that's the norm. If it's a master's program, I would say still send the CV unless it's an applied program. If it's an applied program where you're getting a master's in something. And you know you're going to, um, or a professional program too. So by applied, I mean um, where you're going to, they're helping you get a job right out of the master's. You're not continue on, continuing on in academia and continuing to do research. Um, so if it's an applied program, you know you're going to get, um, you know, an industry job or some sort of job outside of academia, go ahead and send the resume. If you're applying to a professional school, like law school, med school, MBAs, um, most likely the resume is, is a better fit for them than the CV. I hope that helps, Morgan. Thanks so much for your patience. I know it's taking a little while for me to get back to you on these questions, but um, as always, I really appreciate you listening. Okay, and now for my shout-out. This week, my shout-out is an Instagram account called The Latinx Blog. This is an Instagram account aiming to empower, educate, and support the next generation of powerful and resilient Latinx individuals. The person running this account is named Zoe, and she's a blogger and Latinx mentor. One thing that I, I found really interesting and nice and stood out to me when I checked out the account is that she offers free 15-minute mentoring sessions in what she calls her Mentor Me program. Um, I think that's just a great service that she's providing to the community. She reached out to me on Instagram and um, I learned more about it and was impressed. And so that's why I am giving her a shout out. So please check out the Latinx blog on Instagram. That's at the Latinx, L-A-T-I-N-X blog uh, to learn more about the account. Okay, well, that is all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, hope you enjoy your weekend and I'll talk to you all next time. Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you tune in. You can also support the podcast by donating to my Patreon page, Anchor page, or Venmo account, which is at Grad School Fem Touring. If you have questions or episode topics, you can contact me by sending me a DM on Instagram, sending me an email to gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com, sending me a voice message on Anchor, or sending me a message via my personal website at eventmartinezvu.com. Until next time.